Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the history of Ukraine. And, uh, well, you know, specifically the part of the world that is known as Ukraine today. Because, I mean, obviously there has been just a huge amount of international attention on Ukraine and, and the situation there with with Russia uh, escalating the war between uh, itself and the Ukraine enormously in the last couple of weeks. This war of aggression that they're waging, waging against Ukraine is obviously terrible. It's a needless conflict, and, and, and I'll tell you this, Russia will not be remembered fondly by history for instigating it. But with this war raging on and with Ukraine in the international spotlight, I found that I just didn't know that much about the country that is on the front page of, of, of headlines, of, of newspapers and you know making headlines around the world. And I thought, well, I'm going to change that. So I did some reading about, the, about Ukraine, and I thought, well... Maybe other people might be interested in learning a little more about the history of the, the people, the land, and, and the culture that make up modern Ukraine, where this nation has come from, the struggles that it has overcome, and, and is indeed, to this very day, attempting to continue to overcome. However, I'm sorry to say it's not a happy tale. And, you know, a lot of people come to Half House History for some, some frothy and light-hearted entertainment. This week, it is a little more somber, a little more serious, because the history of Ukraine is not one that is filled with triumph or, or joy, largely speaking. Ukrainians haven't enjoyed much in the way of self-determination, let alone independence, for the majority of their long history. However... The story is still an interesting one, and it's still that, you know, perhaps now more than ever is one that's worth sharing, given the attention that is that is on this nation uh, right now around the world. So I thought I'd share it based on the research that I've done. And again, I, I, I suppose I should point out at this point that, you know, I'm not Ukrainian. I don't have any ties to Ukraine as a, as a nation, as a, uh, the people that live there, the culture, anything else like that. This is just based on the research that I've done about Ukraine. And if I've got anything wrong, I'm sorry. This is the summation of my best efforts researching, you know, the, the uh, quite a long period of history. You know, we're covering a few thousand years here. But again, I apologize if I've missed the mark with anything. And I do want to hear from people who are perhaps more intimately acquainted with the topic so I can uh, perhaps, you know, correct any mistakes that I make and that sort of stuff. But broadly speaking, I think that by the end of this podcast, you'll have a better idea of, uh, of the history of, of the nation that is that is dominating you know the world media at this point the coverage of the of the terrible war that's uh, that's going on there and perhaps it will help to shape your your perspectives and your opinions on uh, on on this terrible war that Russia is waging over there anyway this review Ukraine goes back a long way um well well before the the precursors to modern Ukrainians arrived in the area that we today call Ukraine back then it was the the home of various cultures who migrated in and out of it over the centuries but then around the 6th century uh CE in the common era so around 1500 years ago or so the peoples that would go on to become today's Ukrainians they set up shop in and around this area this area that in today's episode we will refer to as Ukraine although for most of its history, it wasn't called that. In fact, most of what is today Ukraine was split up amongst various powers and realms and dynasties and leaders and whatnot throughout history. 
it didn't have consistent, well-defined borders for, for most of its history. So when today, when you listen to this episode, when you hear me refer to Ukraine, I'm talking about the area that makes up today's Ukraine, a nation that just didn't really exist as an independent, sovereign nation-state like it does today. Throughout its history, this land that today makes up Ukraine has been occupied by various tribes, you know, Slavic and Turkic and others. It's been part of the Kievan Rus, which was a massive medieval realm that was obviously based in Kiev, um, although it took in a much larger area than just parts of Ukraine. It stretched all the way north up to Finland. Um, part of Ukraine was, was ruled by a militaristic movement led by the Cossacks at one point. They fought for Ukrainian independence way back in the 17th century. And, you know, just to top things off, Ukraine has also been part of Poland and Russia and Austria. And actually, at one point, all three of those countries at the same time. So a wildly varied and inconsistent history. Although I have to say there is one element that has remained very consistent throughout the years a lack of true sovereign independence for Ukrainian people, a lack of self-determination. It's not the happiest story, as I say, but I'm hoping that talking about the history of Ukraine will help, again, to shape your perspective on the current war they're fighting against Russia, a conflict that that isn't new. It has been going on since 2014 officially, uh, before its dramatic escalation this year in 2022, and has deeply entrenched historical roots, as uh, as we'll discover. Some of the reasons for this conflict go back a, a long, long way. So hopefully we'll emerge with a more thorough understanding of the situation in Ukraine at the moment, and perhaps an understanding of exactly what Ukrainians have, have been put through over the centuries and why they're fighting so hard to defend and preserve their nation today. Anyway, let's begin. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back further, I think, than we've ever been on this podcast, all the way back to between 4,500 and 3,000 BCE, uh, back before the Common Era, when Neolithic cultures were known to inhabit the area that, again, we today call Ukraine. Uh, these these cultures lived in different territories across this region, uh, such as the uh, the Kukuteni Trapillion culture in the west, the Sredni Stog culture in the east. But in time, these cultures, they were supplanted. These people were supplanted by others moving from the Central Asian steppes, the Naya, as they're sometimes known, or the, or the Kurgan. And as we move into the, the Iron Age, yet more people came and went from Ukraine, the, the Dacians, the Sarmatians, the Scythians. Uh, Ukraine was actually part of the Scythian Empire between 750 and 250 BCE. The Scythian Empire was a, a loosely bound empire of nomadic people that occupied land spanning all the way from modern-day Romania across to northern India. But by the time Greek colonists arrive on the northern shores of the Black Sea in the 6th century BCE, I mean, you can see that Ukraine has already been inhabited by a wide range of people over thousands and thousands of years. But even at the time that the Greeks arrived, the cultural and the ethnic ancestors of modern Ukrainians, they still were nowhere to be seen in this part of the world. The, the Sarmatians, the Thracians and, and, the, and the Scythians, they weren't the ones who would go on to be known as Ukrainians. That's still hundreds of years away. And there are many other peoples that will live in what we today call Ukraine before the predecessors of modern Ukrainians arrived. Anyway, as I say... The Greeks arrived, they set up colonies in the late 6th century. The Persian Darius the Great crossed the Bosporus and then the uh, the Danube uh, to wage war against the Scythians. He conquered all the lands that bordered the western half of the Black Sea, although didn't stick around. Ukraine didn't remain part of Darius's Achaemenid Empire. His army just 
just left. They headed back to Asia Minor, back to Anatolia, but already beginning to see just how often this part of the world was contested, how many times it would change hands. But as the centuries pass and we move into the Common Era, sometime between 250 and 350 CE, the Goths arrived in Ukraine, uh, and the Ostrogoths that remained in this part of the world uh, were then eventually subjugated by the Huns in the back half of the 4th century. But continued westward migration saw the Ostrogoths, and indeed the Huns, move on, and Ukraine instead became the home of other people and other cultures. The eastern part of Ukraine became ruled by the Turkic Bulgars as part of a, of a nation known as Old Great Bulgaria, long before the modern nation of Bulgaria was established. Back then, the Bulgar capital Phanagoria was located on the, on the, uh, the Taman Peninsula, which is found on the eastern side of the Black Sea. Um, but then, I mean, even the Bulgars didn't last. Uh, they were conquered and they migrated away, many of them becoming Slavicized, and those who did, were they, they became the, mo- the precursors to, to modern Bulgarians. Uh, but the Bulgars, uh, who were in the eastern part of uh, of Ukraine, in you know in these in this period after the Huns had left, uh, they were conquered, as I say, by the Khazars. Eastern Ukraine became a part of the Turkic Khazar Khanate, a realm that spanned all the way from the eastern half of Ukraine across the Black Sea, past the Caspian Sea, and through to modern day Uzbekistan. The the Khazars. This was a, a monumental realm and a very important commercial link between Europe and Asia. Uh, the Khazars controlled a large, section, a large section of the Silk Road and acted as a, as a buffer between the Byzantine Empire and uh, Islamic caliphates, such as the Umayyad Caliphate, the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, and, and the Khazars, the territory they controlled took in much of modern Ukraine, in, including Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula, uh, the peninsula that extends into the Black Sea. It was a, a large and quite important realm, the Khazars. But uh, out west... Something uh, quite different and very important is happening in the wake of the westward Ostrogothic and Hunnic migrations. I mentioned that these groups uh, left this region, and while the east was conquered uh, first by the Bulgars and then later by the Khazars, in the west, right, as the Ostrogoths, they moved westwards to establish the Ostrogothic kingdom, the kingdom of Italy, Italy, while the Huns, while they were absorbed into other ethnic groups across Europe, a new ethnic group emerged in what is today Western Ukraine. Slavic tribes moved into this area, and it is here in the 5th century CE or so that the direct precursors to modern Ukrainians begin to arrive. From the 5th century and into the 6th, various Slavic tribes took over Ukraine. They expanded rapidly to fill the void that was left by the the westward migration. And these tribes, it's fair to say, were the direct ancestors of modern Ukrainians. They were made up of various ethnic groups, such as the, the, Vol- the, the Volhynians, the, the Drevlians, the Severians, and the Eastern Polans. And the Eastern Polans are of particular significance to our story here because it's thought, although without 100% confidence, admittedly, it's thought that the Eastern Polans were the people who established Kiev, which is, of course, the modern-day capital of Ukraine. Now... Kiev is obviously a very important part of the story today. It's part of it's a very important part of the history of Ukraine. It's it's the capital of, of this nation. So I want to pause for just a second and talk about something that may have come up in your mind in light of the the, the recent escalation of the conflict over over in in Ukraine. Uh, the spelling of uh, of this city's name. The, I want to talk to you about why it's spelt the way that it is with the Latin alphabet and, and, and why it's different to how it used to be spelt and why it's actually quite important to spell it K-Y-I-V and not K-I-E-V. To put it very simply, K-I-E-V is the Russian spelling of the city's name, while K-Y-I-V 
is the Ukrainian spelling. And as we'll come to in due course, the Ukrainian language has it's suffered a fair bit of suppression over the years at the hands of the Russians. It was banned in schools throughout Russian lands from 1804 onwards, and it's generally had a pretty terrible time keeping its head above water. So you can imagine why even before the war with Russia, Ukrainians were very keen to have their capital city recognised in their own language. K-E-I-V is a transliteration of the Russian word for Kiev, and it's spelt with the Cyrillic letters K-E-Y-E-V, whereas in Ukrainian, it's spelt with a different set of Cyrillic letters K-U-Y-V. Now, these spellings can be transliterated from the Cyrillic alphabet into the Latin alphabet, and so K-U-Y-V becomes K-Y-I-V and not K-I-E-V. It's kind of similar to how London is is spelt L-O-N-D-R-E-S in French and pronounced Londres. It's but, but no one in English uses that spelling or, or that pronunciation because London is an English city where people speak English, not French. And so we don't use the French word for it unless you're speaking French, in which case that's entirely different. And also the French haven't been actively suppressing the English language the last 200 years. So it might seem like a small thing, but it's not a small thing for the Ukrainians who have been campaigning since the 90s to have the correct spelling of their capital city recognised internationally. So now you understand why spelling it K-Y-I-V is important. It's a a, a basic acknowledgement of the fact that Ukrainian is the official and legitimate language used by an independent nation of over 40 million people. So it's not something to just be dismissed offhand as, you know, needless pedantry. It does matter to a lot of people. Anyway, according to many historians, the city of Kiev was established sometime around the 7th century. Uh, It's difficult to pin down directly exactly when, uh, as there are very few written, written records from this era. But... If you think this ambiguity is a little confusing, I mean, strap yourselves in because we're about to cover the founding of the Kievan Rus, which is so complex that it involves, I bet you weren't expecting this, bloody Vikings, mate. Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you know, we're doing the, the history of Ukraine, all of a sudden the Vikings pop their head up. Let me, let me, expl- we'll get there in a second. Let me explain how they, uh, how they arrived on the scene. As we move from late antiquity into the early Middle Ages. Uh, the Khazars, they're ruling the roost in eastern Ukraine, as I mentioned, while all of these Slavic tribes I was talking about, they're living in the west of Ukraine. And even if we're not sure exactly when or how Kiev was established, we do know that it definitely existed and was a, was a reasonably substantial settlement, settlement by the 880s. Uh, and further, we know that by this point, it's under the control of the Khazars, who have been steadily expanding their realm as, as time has, has, you know, has, has gone on. And how do we know all this? Well, this is where the Vikings come in. In 882, it was conquered by a bloke known as Oleg of Novgorod, who was a Viking. I mean, again, I didn't anticipate the Vikings making an appearance in the history of Ukraine, uh, in the history of Ukraine, but here they are, thanks to a fella named Rurik. Now, Rurik was of Scandinavian origin, probably from modern-day Sweden. Um, and, you know, just as the Vikings, as you're probably aware, as they expanded and explored and raided westward, so too they travelled south. And many of them set up shop there and, and settled down for good and became known as the Varangians. 
They traveled from Scandinavia up and down the river systems in their longboats, and and many of them chose to to stay wherever they ended up, just as they did when they were they you know they crossed the North Sea and, and landed on the British Isles. But their Norse culture was very quickly subsumed by the Slavic culture, you know, throughout uh, throughout the regions that they settled to the south. And these Varangians were also very quick to adapt to the ways of the lands that they settled in. And the resulting culture, you know, this, this Slavic culture that had some level of, uh, of Norse influence became known as the Rus. And the Rus is sort of the starting point, you won't be surprised to learn, for the cultures that branched off and became various nations as we move out of the Middle Ages and into the early modern and modern periods later on. Uh, Russia, Belarus, and of course, Ukraine as well. They all have a, a shared cultural ancestor in the Rus, in the Vikings or Varangians or whatever you want to call them, that showed up in this part of the world, settled in and sort of, you know, uh, amalgamated their culture with the with the Slavic culture that existed uh, uh, in in this part of the world. So, this migration of, uh, of of Varangians, Vikings, left men like Rurik deep into Central and, and Eastern Europe, uh, Slavicized, obviously, and a long way from their Scandinavian origins. And Rurik is important in particular because he established himself as the ruler of Novgorod. And he founded there, in, while, uh, while taking over Novgorod, he founded the enormously important and long-lasting Rurik dynasty. This dynasty would go on to rule various realms for centuries. And it all began when the Varangian Rurik took control of Novgorod. After Rurik died in 879, his relative Oleg of Novgorod took power as a regent for Rurik's son Igor. But Oleg didn't muck around. In 882, as I say, he went on a campaign to expand the, uh, the territory con- controlled by the Rus, right? And this culminated with his conquest of Kiev from the Khazars in 882, leading to Oleg proclaiming himself the Grand Prince of Kiev and announcing Kiev as the Mother of Rus Cities. And this led, in effect, to the establishment of the Kievan Rus, which you'll remember from episode 4, Olga of Kiev, get across it. And the Kievan Rus was an enormously successful realm, extremely wealthy thanks to its natural resources as well as the lucrative trade routes that ran through it. And the Rurikids were decent custodians of this new realm as well. They worked to expand the realm and its wealth, and in time it would become the biggest state in Europe. It covered territory from the Black Sea all the way up to the Baltic Sea, from from modern-day Ukraine to modern-day Finland, as I said before. And in the southern part in Ukraine, the Kievan Rus came into conflict with Turkic tribes uh, like the Pechenegs over areas such as the Crimean Peninsula, although the Pechenegs did manage to maintain control of, of Crimea. But more to the point, the Ukrainian people that lived in the south, or the, or the precursors to, to modern Ukrainians, they, they weren't called Ukrainians at this point. The, these precursors, they, while the Kievan Rus was an independent and, and very strong and forthright nation, the people living in the south, they weren't entirely independent of, or you know, living under their own steam because they were part of a, a much larger group of people, the Rus, that, again, expanded this realm from, for miles and miles across, uh, across Central and Eastern Europe. And so we still are lacking, in, in very specific terms, an independent nation of Ukrainian people. The, the Kievan Rus is probably the closest that you can have, apart from maybe the Cossacks that we'll come to in due course, 
Uh, it's the closest that you can say that the Ukrainians were to uh, being independent and self-governing and, and autonomous. But because this realm was tied up with, you know, a, a culture that spanned the the, the length of of Eastern or of, of Eastern Europe, as I say, all the way up to Finland or modern day Finland, it's difficult to say that it was a, a Ukrainian nation. On top of that, the fact that you know Ukrainian people at this point don't really exist. It, it is still the the precursors. The Rus were very much the precursors to, to what we today call modern Ukrainians. So as you've already figured out by now, I mean, as I already sort of explained, the Rus gave their name to the modern day states of, of Russia and, and Belarus. And, and, and the history of all of these nations, as well as Ukraine, has been heavily influenced by the Norse settlers who moved from the north to the point that, you know, again, these countries' names come from the name given to the, given to the Varangians who settled there. Um, and in fact, during the time that it existed, the Kievan Rus was referred to as Russia in, La- in Latin before this then shifted to Ruthenia in, in the coming centuries. But what about the name Ukraine? We've talked about this name. We've talked about the fact that it doesn't apply to the people that are living there just yet. But it is during this time, during the history of the Kievan Rus, that the term Ukraine was first used to describe the land in this part of the world. Although, again, not in the way that we do today. Modern Ukraine is still centuries away. But the term Ukraine came to mean borderland, and it referred to the southern border, the southern border areas of the Kievan Rus, as well as some other border areas as well. But it's the first time around the around the twelfth century that we have this term Ukraine being used to describe this part of the world. In time, however, the Kievan Rus it fell. Its trade routes became less profitable. The decline of the neighbouring Byzantine Empire destabilised it politically, and regional factions began to divide it up. And then. In the 13th century, the matter was put to bed when the Mongols arrived. That was that. In 1240, the Mongols sacked Kiev and the Kievan Rus was no more. The Rurik dynasty did survive uh, and uh, ruled, continued to rule one of these regional factions that I mentioned before, the Kingdom of Galicia Volhynia, um, which at the time was known as the Kingdom of Ruthenia. And it began as one of the successor states to the Kievan Rus as it fell apart, in addition to these other ones that would go on to become states like Russia, you know, well, firstly, the the Grand Duchy of of, of Moscow, of course, other nations like Belarus, what have you. But the Kingdom of Galicia-Volhynia, or the Kingdom of Ruthenia, depending on what you want to call it, um, this was one of the successor states to the Kievan Rus. But once the Mongols had had their say and ripped through this part of the world, uh, this kingdom became a vassal of the Golden Horde. Now, the Golden Horde was one of the successor states to the Mongol Empire after it splintered apart, and it, and it, and it ruled over Galicia-Volhynia from 1253 onwards. Galicia-Volhynia took in the western part of today's Ukraine, and the eastern part, which was also a vassal of the Golden Horde, uh, was outside its borders. So again, we've got a state where the people who would go on to become Ukrainians in the modern sense do have their own kingdom. But they're not independent. They are under the banner of the Golden Horde. And throughout the back half of the 13th century, there are all sorts of conflicts throughout this area. The Ruthenians fought the Polish, uh, the Hungarians, the, the Lithuanians, even the Mongols themselves, the people who were you know, ruling over them. Alliance has chopped and changed. The people living in Galicia, uh, Volhynia, I'm calling them the Ruthenians because it's a bit easier. Uh, the Ruthenians, they allied themselves with their Mongol overlords when it suited them. Uh, they resisted them when it didn't. They were allied with Bohemia for a while as well there. And, and territory was changing hands all over the place between Galicia, Volhynia, Poland, Lithuania, Hungary, and others as well. But as we move out of the 13th and into the 14th century, Galicia, Volhynia entered into a period of decline. 
along with the branch of the Rurik dynasty that ruled there. The Rurik dynasty was, you know, the Rurikids, they were doing okay elsewhere. They overthrew the Golden Horde further north. They established the Grand Duchy of Moscow, which I, I, I already mentioned. Uh, that would go on to become the Sardom of Russia, with the name, of course, coming from the term Rus. Um, and the Rurikids ruled there in Russia until 1598, when the very last Rurikid Tsar, Fyodor I, died without an heir. Uh, and this, of course, will be very familiar to alert listeners of this podcast because you remember from episode 164, The Time of Troubles, get across it. That is, The Time of Troubles is directly linked to Viking history, to the Varangians who had settled and established the Kievan Rus. When the Kievan Rus fell apart, you know, the, the Rurikids went off and established the, uh, the Grand Duchy of Moscow, which then became the Tsardom of Russia, which led to The Time of Troubles. So history, is it's all, it's all connected. Anyway. We're focusing our attention further south, where the Rurikids did die off a lot sooner than their northern counterparts. In in 1323, the very last of the Rurikids in Ukraine died, and so Galicia Volhynia was fought over in this power vacuum by, by Poland and Lithuania and Hungary. And of course the Golden Horde. Let's not forget about them. They, you know, they're still attempting to hold on to their vassalized possession. But at this point in, in European history, Poland and Lithuania are quite considerably powerful nations, and ultimately Galicia-Volhynia was split in two. Southern Galicia ended up as part of Poland, while northern Volhynia, which included Kiev, became part of Lithuania. So, modern-day Ukraine, again, is still split up, and at this point, much of it is now under either Polish or Lithuanian control, although the eastern part still remained under the control of the Golden Horde. So, once again, Ukraine, as we know it today, split up amongst all these different factions, all these different nations, and ruled by people other than themselves, the the Ukrainians themselves. And it is around this time that the term Ukraine once again begins to resurface and is used to describe this part of the world. Uh, It is, again, referring to a borderland along the borders of Lithuania mainly, but the people that lived there are still not known as Ukrainian. We call them today Ukrainian. Back then, they were known as Ruthenian. Uh, and their fate as vassals of the of the Polish and the Lithuanians was wildly inconsistent as time went on. Initially, the Ruthenians, they did all right. Some of them rose pretty high within the governments of Poland or Lithuania. Um, the Ukrainian language and, and culture continued unabated. The language that would go on to become modern Ukrainian was was largely unaffected by uh, you know, the Polish or Lithuanian overlords that, uh, that oversaw this part of the world. However, it wasn't to last because as the years went on, as you may know, Poland and Lithuania, they grew closer and closer politically speaking and uh, ultimately would you know, form a union, become a, uh, a single nation state, the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And, and as the two nations headed towards that destiny, it didn't have a very positive impact on the Ruthenians or the Ukrainians. Uh, increased migration from the now cooperative Poland Lithuania into their territorial possessions further east into Ukraine meant that Ukrainians were pushed further eastward, dispossessed of their lands, and they suffered the suppression of their language and their culture. And it was the Poles in particular that were pretty ruthless in attempting to, to polonize their eastern neighbours as more and more migrants poured into Ukrainian lands and as further crackdown on, crackdowns on the Ukrainian language and, and, and culture were put into place, it all ultimately came a gutzer. 
the Ukrainians were, were sick and tired of being pushed around and, and staged a series of rebellions against the Polish and, and, and the Lithuanians, mainly the Polish in, in, in fairness. Um, and while some of these rebellions were had, had moderate or even small amounts of success, they made some gains, captured some cities for the Ukrainians, although remember they're still not really called that, that back then, the rebellions ultimately weren't successful. But the Polish colonisation and, and the Polonisation of the people living in Ukraine, it didn't stop. And in fact, it increased, particularly after the official union of Poland and Lithuania, the Union of Lublin in, uh, in uh, 1569, the formation of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, meant that most of modern-day Ukraine came under direct Polish authority. Uh, a notable exception to this, however, by the way, is the Crimean Peninsula and the lands to, to the direct north. But in 1441, as part of the decline and, and the fall of the Golden Horde, the Crimean Khanate was established there, known, as the, known at the time as Little Tartary. The Tatars that ruled it, they remained there until 1783. They stuck around a long time in Crimea. Uh, they considered themselves the successors of the, of the Golden Horde. And you might be wondering, what happened in 1783? Well, interestingly enough, a very similar thing to what happened in 2014. Uh, because Russia moved in, annexed Crimea, and ultimately just made it part of the Russian Empire. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll, we will get to that in due course. Let's talk about Ukraine un, uh, under Polish rule in the early modern and modern periods. Because the Polish colonisation of Ukrainian lands saw many Ukrainian nobles just accept their fate. They became increasingly Polonized. They converted from Orthodox Christianity to Catholicism. But most of the peasantry remained Orthodox and, and, and held on to this Ukrainian national identity. They continued to speak Ukrainian or Ruthenian, uh, and they had to deal with these Polish efforts to you know, suppress them uh, and, and ultimately attempt to turn them in, into serfs. And some that resisted the Polish in this way became very famous for their resistance, famous for their fighting spirit. They became known as the Cossacks. They moved east. They established a, a small and autonomous military, uh, a series of, of, of small and autonomous uh, military communities and staged rebellions against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And it was one such rebellion the 1648 Khmelnytsky Uprising that led to the Ukrainians establishing a nation-state known today as the Cossack Hetmanate. And you could argue that this Cossack Hetmanate was the very first truly independent Ukrainian nation-state, although unfortunately it, uh, it, it didn't stick around for too long. It was called the, the Zaporizhian Host back then, and uh, it is... You know, whatever your perspective on whether or not it was the you know the first independent Ukrainian nation, it was definitely one of the truest precursors to modern Ukraine. It sought independence for its people. It promoted Ukrainian language and culture. However, it was in a very very tenuous position because it was located in what is today central Ukraine and therefore was hemmed in on all sides. It had the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to the west. It had Russia to the north. It had the Crimean Khanate to the east. And it had the Ottoman Empire to the south. And so, in light of this fact, in light of the fact that they were, you know, heavily outnumbered on all sides and, you know, 
quite likely weren't going to survive on their own, the Cossack Hetmanate made a decision. And this decision would prove to be one with enormous consequences, profound consequences for the Ukrainian people throughout the centuries. The Hetmanate sought the protection of Russia in order to gain its independence from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Now, Russia agreed to this proposal, and so the Hetmanate became, officially, a Russian protectorate. However, sadly, it didn't take too long for this to have some very unfortunate consequences for the Cossacks and their fledgling nation. At this point in history, Russia and Poland were embroiled in a very long war. And despite Russia agreeing to take on the Cossack Hetmanate as a protectorate, when the Russo-Polish War ended in 1667, Russia very happily went back on this and carved the Hetmanate in two, gave half to Poland, without even consulting with the Cossacks as part of the post-war settlement. So this was not a great result for the Ukrainians as half of their nation has been carved away and handed straight back to the Polish. And I'm sorry to say that it only got worse from there. Because as the years continued, Russia turned its half of the Hetmanate into less of a protectorate and more of a direct imperial possession. It officially incorporated the Cossack Hetmanate into its realm in 1708 and ultimately dismantled and then abolished the last remnants of Cossack rule in 1764. Russia referred to its new protectorate, or possession really, as Little Russia, while, interestingly enough, it was during this period that the region finally became known by its modern name, Ukraine, outside of Russia, everywhere else. Everywhere else from, from Poland to the Ottoman Empire, they referred to the area that had been the Cossack Hetmanate before being subsumed into Russia as Ukraine, and we've known it as that ever since. But Russia expanded its hold over Ukraine in the late 18th century. In the back half of the 18th century, after Poland lost a series of wars against Russia, Prussia and Austria, Poland was partitioned and the lands that today constitute Western Ukraine were carved up amongst the victors between 1772 and 1795. The westernmost part of Ukraine ended up under Austrian control. Uh, However, most of Ukraine was annexed by Catherine the Great and brought into the Russian Empire eventually. But at this point, Russia had, and for good reason, a very healthy fear of Ukrainian separatism. And they cracked down on Ukrainians as a result. Their language, their cultural practices, and of course the Cossacks that had staged rebellions in the past were all put into the crosshairs of the Russians who realised that in order to hold on to this possession, they needed to Russify it. They needed to uh, attempt to purge this, this, this sense of Ukrainian nationalism that had, that had uh, you know, inspired the, the Cossack rebellions in the past and had, and had held Ukrainian people together for so long. But of course, the Ukrainians, they resisted Russification. This period is referred to as as the Ukrainian National Revival. And while Ukrainian nationalism was more or less forced underground, it it flourished. This irrepressible nationalistic spirit remained amongst the Ukrainian people, oppressed as they were by by Russian rule. And this spirit remained through thick and thin, and we still see it today 
on the front pages of the newspaper. It flourished well into the 19th century and beyond. The, the Ukrainians, they held on to their language. They held on to their culture. They endured despite Russia's efforts to stamp them out and incorporate them wholesale into the Russian Empire. Despite this, however, Ukraine remained under firm Russian control for the 19th century and into the 20th as we approach the world wars. Even if Russia wasn't able to stamp out the Ukrainian language and Ukrainian culture and all the rest of it, still, politically speaking, there is no doubt whatsoever that Ukraine is still firmly under the control of the Russian Empire. All the same, at the outbreak of the First World War, with Ukraine still being a Russian imperial possession, the last century or more of suppression had not eliminated the Ukrainian sense of nationhood. They still shared a distinct language. They still had their own way of life. And the Ukrainians had never really given up on the idea that they would one day become an independent nation. And an opportunity to, to, to seize that independence came when the Russian Empire collapsed in the wake of the Russian Revolution in 1917. Between 1917 and 1921, Ukraine was rife with conflict as various movements and factions all fought for dominance, all seeking their version of independence, and some of them not even seeking independence. It was total chaos, despite many of the groups, you know, Broadly speaking, having similar goals, they weren't aligned or their goals were different in a way that made them seemingly incompatible or or just had completely contradictory goals to the various Ukrainian nationalist movements that were up and about trying to feed their opponents the left and the right. It was it was chaos. The the, the all of Ukraine was was plunged into anarchy and, and the, the Ukrainian War of Independence was Ultimately, I'm sorry to say, a loss for Ukraine. Throughout the conflict, there were a few small areas that were able to seize a short-lived independence, such as the anarchic free territory of Ukraine. But by 1922, the entirety of Ukraine had once again been subsumed by Russian interests, this time under the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. And the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic remained part of the Soviet Union right through to its collapse in the 90s. And I'm sorry to say that for much of this period of Ukrainian history, as for much of the rest of it, it wasn't a pleasant period for Ukrainians. The USSR's forced collectivization under Stalin specifically targeted Ukrainian landowners, amongst, amongst others, and led to a horrific famine in 1932 and 1933, which killed millions of upon millions of Ukrainians. And the Second World War brought even more horror to the Ukrainian people. Some Ukrainians fought on the Soviet side, some aligned themselves with the Nazis to fight the Russians, and some, the Ukrainian insurgent army, fought everyone. The Soviets, the Russians, the Germans, the Nazis, everyone. However, after the war, Ukraine went in an interesting direction. It recovered very rapidly. It underwent a period of development and industrialization that was very swift. In 1954, Crimea was transferred to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, despite having a sizable Russian population. And between 1964 and 1982, the USSR itself was ruled by Ukrainians. Both Nikita Khrushchev and Leonid Brezhnev were Ukrainian. 
1986, however, the Chernobyl disaster bolstered nationalist sentiment within Ukraine when a Soviet nuclear plant exploded and the, and the fallout contaminated a large part of Ukraine. These anti-Russian feelings re-emerged very strongly and, and actually helped to speed on the collapse of the USSR from within, from this internal uh, instability. And of course, the collapse of the USSR took place, as you probably know, in 1991. And in the midst of the breakdown of the Soviet Union, Ukraine finally declared its independence on the 24th of August 1991, with over 90% of the Ukrainian population voting for independence. Ukraine was duly recognised as an independent, sovereign nation in December 1991, after hundreds and hundreds of years of Ukraine and, and Ukrainians either existing as part of a realm alongside other people, such as in the Kievan Rus, or existing under the control of other nations from Poland to Russia to Austria, Ukraine was finally independent, standing on its own two feet. However, this independence didn't bring about political stability. Early Ukrainian government administrations were plagued with scandals and corruption, and the Orange Revolution in 2004 effectively overturned an election result that was found to have been rigged. And then, in 2014... The Russo-Ukrainian war began when Russia annexed Crimea, just as it had done all those years beforehand, and the war continued to rage on in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, where pro-Russian separatists contributed to the fighting. Russia just couldn't keep its snoot out of Ukrainian affairs, and so the two nations have been in conflict for years as a result of this, although of course the conflict has escalated astonishingly quickly thanks to Russia's aggression this year in 2022. And today, in, in a strange turn of events, the president that is leading Ukraine through this crisis, a crisis that threatens the very existence of the Ukrainian nation, the president is someone who rose to prominence as an actor who, believe it or not, played the role of the Ukrainian president in a TV show. Vladimir Zelensky, someone you've probably heard of nowadays, the star of the Ukrainian TV show Servant of the People, which, be which then became the name of his real-life political party, he won 73% of the vote at the last presidential election. And in the face of this terrible and, and, and thoroughly unjustified escalation in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, Zelensky has come to represent the indomitable fighting spirit of the Ukrainians as they deal with the foreign occupiers, which is something, as we've learned today, the Ukrainians have had to do for the overwhelming majority of their history. The difference today is that Ukraine is an independent nation, fighting for no cause other than its own. After centuries of subjugation and oppression, Ukrainians are fighting for their lives, not just as individual people, but also as a nation, as a culture against this awful Russian incursion. And look, I don't and I can't fully understand the reasons behind Russia's invasion, but at least some of these reasons must be historical, especially given that Russia ruled Ukraine for hundreds of years and in places like Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Due to the histories of these regions, they have significant Russian populations. This situation becomes even murkier as a result of that. Many Russians seem to labour under the misapprehension that because of their shared cultural genesis as, as the Rus, 
Russians and, and Belarusians and Ukrainians are, are all one people, but it is not so. As we've learned today, the Ukrainians are their own people with the right to tell their own story. And any way you slice it, this latest escalation in the Russo-Ukrainian war is thoroughly unjustified and has led to the needless deaths of thousands. And it only continues the tragic story of Ukrainian oppression. Perhaps this history of oppression is bolstering Ukraine as they fight off the invaders, hardening their hearts and stealing their resolve as they fight for their homeland and their culture and their very way of life. But there's no doubt, in my mind at least, that after centuries of being ruled by others, centuries of cultural and linguistic suppression, centuries of lacking any real say in their own destiny, Ukraine is utterly undeserving of the unwarranted cruelty and suffering inflicted upon them by Russia. In real terms, I'm I'm not doing much to stand in the way of the war, really. I'm not over there fighting for Ukraine. I'm not sending them the guns and the tanks that they need to fight off the Russians. I'm not living through the, the horror of war as, as millions of Ukrainians are right now as I record this podcast. But I hope that in some small way, talking about the history of Ukraine helps to shape your perspective of this needless and unjustified conflict and helps you see that Ukrainians, like all people everywhere, deserve the chance to forge their own destiny on their own terms. Ukraine knows oppression all too well. Ukraine knows what it's like to be marginalised and suppressed and erased. And so they fight. They fight like their existence depends upon it because, in all honesty, it does. So I hope you'll join me in supporting Ukraine through this conflict in, in whatever way you can. I know that a Tin Pot History podcast won't shift the balance of the war in their favour, far from it. But it's something, at least. And if people come away with a more thorough understanding of some of the historical context behind this war, then this episode has served its purpose. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of Ukraine up until today. And uh, it's a history that I hope gains a bit more positive momentum in the time to come, as I'm, as I'm sure you hope as well. And hopefully this podcast has done something to increase your understanding of what's going on over there and increase your understanding of, of a nation that is, is very often overlooked, really. It's a nation of 40 million people that has only really been thrust into the international spotlight for the worst of reasons. So hopefully, at the very least, we've all come away from this having learned something. Anyway, thank you so much for uh, for listening to another episode of Half Fast History. And uh, if you're a new listener, welcome. By all means, welcome. And welcome to your first ever boring housekeeping stuff that comes at the end of every episode. Halfhousehistory.net. You can go there. You can find old episodes. You can find new episodes. You can find links to everything from the uh, the feed, which is hosted uh, at Anchor. Anchor.fm slash History is the best place to get the RSS feed, which you can whack into your preferred podcast provider to subscribe to the show. And of course, you can find links there to not only the merch shop powered by TeePublic, you can pick up a t-shirt or a mug or a laptop case, whatever you like over there. Uh, you can also support the show more directly on Patreon and gain access to things like uh, show notes, which I've been told serve as very, very uh, useful study guides 
because uh, much of the show notes are written in, in quite approachable language. So if you've got a topic that you're, uh, you're having to, uh, you know, study for, for any, I mean, I don't know, you are really scraping the bottom, the bottom of the barrel looking at my notes, but look, some people have said that they've been useful, uh, but you can also get access to uh, shows ahead of time. And of course, uncut episodes, we can hear all my burps and burps and farts and also all the horrendous mistakes I make while trying to pronounce foreign words. So enjoy that. Um, and there's also exclusive Patreon-only merch that you can go and grab uh, for yourself if you sign up to uh, one of the eligible tiers for three or more months. Patreon will ship that merch out to you for no extra cost. So go and get across that. But more than anything else, thank you so much for listening to this dumb podcast as we tackled a, a rather more serious topic this week. Uh, and I, I, know I appreciate the people who have, uh, have backed me in, uh, in addressing more serious topics. It's something that we don't do too often on this show, but uh, I think it's something that's worth doing, particularly in, in times like this when, you know, everyone's attention is absorbed by a huge international issue that maybe not everyone has a huge amount of background on. So hopefully today's podcast has, has, has helped address that even a little bit. And normally we would uh, close out the show, of course, with a question posed on Reddit, but um, I'd don't really want to make light of the situation uh, of, of what Ukrainians are, are going through or find humor in, in, in Russian history today. So for the first time in the show's history, we will not be closing with a question on Reddit. And instead, I'm going to direct you to the very worthy UNICEF fundraiser that is going on right now to benefit the poor people in Ukraine as they suffer this war of aggression at the hands of the Russians. Head over to help.unicef.org slash Ukraine-emergency and give what you can to the people who so sorely need it. Mm-hmm.